Happy Sunday, everyone, and thank you so much for tuning in to another episode from the Isle of Dr. Garneau. I'm Kelly J. Lewis, and with me, of course, is Dr. Chris Garneau. Now, I tagged you in a story on social media this past week because it was fascinating. And it's about the issue that we talked about last week in Michigan about how armed protesters stormed the Capitol and uh, were able to basically draw down their guns on legislators in the, um, in the room. And so their governor went on CNN and denounced that as racist, uh, denounced their actions and the conservatives really got all over her for that. And so, Uh, One of the things that she talked about and was pointing out were uh, like this imagery, nooses, swastikas, things like that, rebel flags. And that's the first thing that was curious to me. And you're from the North. Rebel flags, I mean, that's a Southern thing. Is that a thing in the North or is that just there for the symbol, you know? Now, that's an interesting symbolism. So I will say, and and I have limited experience with the Deep South, but I have, you know, traveled by car through Mississippi and Alabama. I saw some of the Confederate flags there. So I think there's a lot less than there used to be, but just like people in their, you know, front yards uh, would still have a flag going. Um, Up north, I would say that imagery where you see it like, as a truck decal or in the back window or something like that, you do see it every once in a while, which always really blew me away because that, you know, where I'm from in North Dakota, we came in way after the civil war. That wasn't even, we were part of the picture. Uh, we were way after that. Um, and Michigan wouldn't have been part of that either. Um, and they certainly wouldn't have been part of the Confederacy based off of the, you know, the line that was drawn. Um, so what I, think is going on is what the what the flag is supposed to mean and i i think in some ways it's it's a confluence of a few different things first off it is um seen as a subversive symbol for people who feel like they are opposed to a larger power structure um so you know the confederate army being that which was trying to stick up for its own values against a more bigger, oppressive, you know, a Northern aggressor. Um, The way that history books sometimes talk about the civil war was that the Southerners fought harder. They were outnumbered. They were, you know, and it kind of glorifies, and I've heard this in the South that, that history teachers, especially in the South tend to kind of glorify that a little bit. Like, man, they were, they, they fought with such passion because it had everything to lose. You know, they had so much to lose, which is probably true economically. Um, so that, that flag, while it, in that symbol, while it's connected to the South, it's still, it's seen as rebellion as the rebel flag for that reason. So you do see it up there, but I'm going to guess 99.99999% of people who are flying that flag are white for the most part. Um, And uh, which is interesting because if you look at people of color across all of America, they probably could could teach those white 
is about oppression, maybe a little bit more. So that's that's how I interpret it. It's probably more of a an act of rebellion for privileged people who don't realize how privileged they are. That's really interesting. And it's like I said, th- that was a weird thing to me. Like, they're in Michigan. Why all the rebel flags? Like, totally a deep South thing. So one of the things this article says, and I'm reading directly from it, it's from salon.com. And it says the question isn't whether white identity politics and racism are fueling the protests. The real question is why racism isn't some kind of magical force that shields your body from the coronavirus. Even Donald inject bleach Trump hasn't been fool enough to suggest you can defeat the virus by wrapping yourself in a Confederate flag. Yet there's no denying that there's a direct correlation between racist attitudes and the belief that the coronavirus is an overblown hoax and the lockdowns are the result of a widespread leftist conspiracy. That is nuts. Yeah, no, I I can see it. I mean, you see it in the pictures. Um, So the people that are, honestly, I don't know if, if they're, like it, it would make more sense to me and, it, and I'm still trying to wrap my mind around all of it. I think the protests would make more sense to me if it were all about economics, people who are struggling economically and wanted to go back to work. I think that's maybe a rationalized kind of reason for that. But what I hear, and, and maybe this isn't true, but the rhetoric that I hear is all about, it's my constitutional right. You can't take away my constitutional right to, to do as I please, to go where I want. And so they kind of, it's kind of like in, in, engulfed in more of a, um, a liberty, give me liberty or give me death kind of, uh, kind of narrative rather than the identity politics that it is. Because I agree with that article, which is, it really is identity politics. So you have individuals who are identifying with um, kind of an axis of several different ideas that are going on. So like they're identifying with probably the, the axis of whiteness, which has to do with that imagery, but it also has to do with um, feeling oppressed by government overreach. Um, and yeah, it, and, and the other part of it is that conspiratorial kind of feeling, because if you feel like you're an oppressed person or you identify with an oppressed group, um, you're more likely to buy into conspiracies. But Here's the, the weird part about it, and I'm glad you brought that up because there have been a lot of conspiracies floating around. Um, conspiracies sometimes turn out to be true, but those conspiracies are almost never, have almost never historically been directed towards white people. There have been government conspiracies, um, but it's generally people uh, who are not middle class and, and white who end up on the opposite side of it. So I, I think it's more of an identity rather than an actual felt oppression. Like, I don't think they're actually feeling the oppression they just want to be part of something this article goes on to say and it talks about laura ingram and even i won't say on my own airwaves what i think about that woman but anyway uh she retweeted propaganda last week from a notorious white nationalist group v dare and the tweet blamed immigrants of color for spreading the coronavirus at a meatpacking plant in a blatant bid to racialize a virus that experts believe was primarily introduced in the U.S. by visitors from Europe, not by immigrants from Africa, Asian, or Latin America. The Europeans brought it again. 
<laughs> History repeats itself, right? I'm telling you, the Europeans are always bringing the bioterrorism. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's weird that, like, in, in Ingram, she's, I agree, she's kind of infuriating to listen to uh, as a talking head. That it, it's, it, you see that within all the rhetoric from the right. I mean, Donald Trump did the same thing by trying to refer to it as the Wuhan virus and the Chinese virus rather than the name that's been given. And, you know, that it's, it's, it's a weird way of doing it. So there was, I, I know a lot of people had some strong feelings about whether or not calling it the China virus was, or the Chinese virus was racist. I personally think it is because it's, yeah, it origi- may have originated from someone in China, but that doesn't make it when you, here, here's the problem. When you call it the Chinese virus, it, gets inside people's minds who are already primed to believe in conspiracies that the Chinese government was behind it. Um, And the other thing it does is for Asian Americans in general, I think that kind of puts a target on them as, you know, for having to deal with um, reactions from the public, maybe distrust people, uh, not maybe less likely to uh, offer offer jobs or, you know, just basic stuff, you know, friendliness and that kind of stuff. And I don't, I don't know if the president or any of the talking heads on the right really connect those things, that there are real implications to this. But it's weird that they keep going back to nationalism and xenophobia and then at the same time say, how dare you call us racist for, you know, trying to, uh, you know, shine light on it. It's all, all these people who aren't white who are to blame for everything well that's kind of by definition racist (laughs) it's weird it's like well i'm gonna do this racist thing but please don't call me racist because that would hurt my feelings or you know it's weird because i'm not Um, a racist yeah exactly well i know i just don't like people of color (laughs) i've heard so many white people say that kind of stuff i'm not joking my entire life and you probably have too like but they'll use kind of like a a racial epithet like I've, i've heard someone use really, really bad words to say, but, but I'm not racist. Like, and it was, I'm not racist. I'm like, but you just said that thing. (laughs) You can't can't tell me you're not racist. If you say that, that's ridiculous. So yeah. um, Well, and here's the thing too, the, they took our jobs or they're going to take our jobs crowd. Uh, Hey, why don't you go and work at the meat packing plant? Why don't you go and start harvesting some of these crops? Why don't mm-hmm. you go and do some of these things that you see as predominantly brown people work? Yeah, that has been that. That's another major issue. Is like it's the denial of the modern global economy and how that works. It's you know, yeah, they took our jobs. That's been a, a common trope in South Park. Uh, did a great play on that. Um, but <laughs> you know, if, if you look at what's been going on with the, the closing down of the border and the fact that. Uh, our southern border, and, pe- and there's been a reluctance now because of the virus for people to cross the border illegally uh, into into the United States because of fear of transmission and those kinds of things. You know, one of the, the you know, we've been focusing on so many other parts of the economy. The farmers that that are that rely on um, migrant labor to you know, help with harvesting crops. We're not at harvest time for most of them. We're going to feel that coming. I mean, this is, this is going to be part of it. And and the farmers in a lot of those states will already tell you that without migrant labor, 
there really isn't anyone to be able to do those jobs. And so the, you know, the, there's like a, it's what we call a revolving door of immigration. And so most people who come to another country, United States or anywhere else, um, for a temporary amount of time in order to make money, they usually just want to go back home because that's where their entire life is, their family, their friends, whatever. So it's like a revolving door. They come to the United States, they work for a while, and then they go back home, uh, and then they do it again the next year because they can make a lot of money doing that. But what happens is when you start locking down on, on immigration, and I understand right now we have to for COVID, but just in general, when you lock down on immigration, you actually see undocumented immigration increase because people don't want to leave their, you know, the place where they're working now because they feel like they may never get back again. So actually having more lax borders strangely enough, tends to reduce the amount of undocumented immigration. But at the same time, we don't actually know how to run an economy without undocumented immigration. So not to get into immigration too too deep, but then it becomes a color thing when you start talking about the white nationalists and a lot of the conservative talking heads because they start using these dog whistles and buzzwords like immigrants to mean brown people. Um, and, and like you said, you know, the coronavirus, started from Europeans, we actually get a lot of immigration from Europe. Um, and a lot of people are coming to the United States for jobs, you know, from Europe. And so I don't know, I don't know exactly how we got to the place where we have such a strong racial divide, but just look at any Trump rally, look at any of these rallies that are taking place outside of these state houses. It's over 99% white people. It is so hard to find a person of color who is associated with the Republican Party today. And I think it's because it has taken on a identity politic of whiteness. And that's just kind of like part of its DNA right now. That's very true. Okay, so let me uh, go to the next point in this article. And this is, this is where um, it really hits home. For me, I feel like this is the heart of it. Southern Poverty Law Center explained in a recent report, while the anti-lockdown protests were organized and funded by wealthy right-wing donors, far-right groups like the Proud Boys quickly realized the value of the protests to amplify their proto-fascist views, recruit new members, and further ingratiate themselves with Republican politicians. Neil Farquhar of the New York Times expanded on this, reporting that the far-right sees the crisis as a potent recruiting tool and its various groups can exploit to bolster their white supremacist anti-government agenda. David Neewert, who wrote, who writes for the daily costs uh, and has covered far right wing groups says they are seizing on the crisis, hoping they can use it to kickstart quote the long sought second civil war they believe is on the verge of erupting in the United States. This partly illuminates the significance of the Federate flags at the protests displayed by those who clearly hope the forces of racism and reactionary politics will win the second time around. Wow. That, yeah. So it's sort of like seeing, kind of seeing the optics of these protests, seeing it's mostly white people who are disgruntled and that is kind of like prime picking for, for white nationalist groups. I mean, you think about like a lot of the, um, the neo-Nazi groups, uh, and who they, I, yeah, I guess you can use the word pray, who they pray on to kind of bring into their ideology. And it really is disaffected people, like people who feel like they've been left out of a system. Um, you know, the, the movie American history, yes, one of the things that it definitely got right 
was that you know the the white nationalists or the you know neo Nazis in that case uh, tend to find people who are looking who feel like they've been disconnected from something, and it makes perfect sense that they would see that as an opportunity. But man, it just makes it it really just kind of drives home the point. But they're they're vultures waiting for kind of the right time to be able to wedge their way into mainstream politics. And it's nuts to think that groups like the Proud Boys, who are just reprehensible, can start to make a mark within mainstream politics in the United States. And this article also says that Trump himself has clearly indicated he thinks both that his reelection prospects hinge more on the economy than on the number of people dead from COVID-19, partly because he still thinks he can cover up the latter. And, and that's true. Yeah. He, they can say anything they want about the statistics, which is something I want to talk about next week. But it also says the, the rot runs deeper than political expediency. There is obviously something deeply compelling to white identity ideologues about the idea that this virus is a hoax concocted by the deep state beyond their desire to defend Trump. The far right has grown increasingly hostile to the government in the face of social programs, most recently Obamacare, that they view as redistributing money from deserving white people to people of color. All the bellyaching about tyranny and patriotic cosplay is about creating a moral justification for anti-government views that are rooted in racist resentment and xenophobia. The lockdown protests are about further enshrining their hatred of Democrats and their reluctance to pay taxes or share public goods with non-white people. People at to as resistance to tyranny. <laughs> so there you go on that, and it, it does go on. It's really fascinating read, but uh, yeah. In a nutshell, that on its face just seems again like I, I like how you said patriotic cosplay. Because um, you see all of them wearing their Uncle Sam stuff, which I don't think they realize is just the same thing as like you know dressing up like Batman or something. Um, <laughs> but but it's deeper than that. Yeah, I mean it's it's it, it's part of that resentment towards the progress that was made during you know Obama's administration, such as better health care. And I think what they did see is they they viewed that as a redistribution of wealth to people of color. But the the reality is, and, and that's where all this gets twisted. That there's really no statistical evidence of that. Um, one of the things that Obama did, the biggest thing Obama did for people of color is tried to rebound the economy with the stimulus program, which kind of looked at all both together. So it wasn't like a program that was designed specifically for minority groups. Um, but there is that belief. And I think the belief was because the dude was black and for no other reason. Um, and in rural areas, they did suffer a little bit more, but that wasn't like a targeted attack. But yes, they are seeing that as a race thing, as a white, us white people versus all the rest. And it's happening primarily in these rural areas where they're starting to feel like the, there, there was, there's resentment politics that Trump is like picking up the mantle for them because they've been ignored for eight years because Obama never talked about them specifically. It's weird. It's like if white people aren't in the spotlight, they, they tend to throw a little bit of a tantrum. And I think this is, it, you know, think about taking their guns to the state house, making a lot of noise, getting in people's faces. It's a tantrum. It's a temper tantrum. And it's like people who have felt privileged for a long time 
having to know or having to, to then feel like um, a little bit of that and, and feeling like maybe their, their privilege is being taken away and at the same time, same time denying they have privilege at all. It's a weird thing to watch uh, from a sociological view. And so did you see the news article about the um, armed citizens uh, who escorted, uh, armed black citizens, escorted the very first uh, elected black female uh, representative in Lansing? So that's huge. That's huge for communities of color. And because... Go ahead. Oh I, yeah, I was gonna say I saw the visual on it. It looked amazing, and it, and when I looked at it, it was a it was a group of black uh, bl- black gentlemen who were all holding um, weapons, large weapons. And it, when I looked at it, the one thing I, I that occurred to me is you never see that. You never ever see that. And it, it was just like, oh wow, this is the first time since Black Panther like pictures, you know, from the seventies that you've ever seen that because it's always white dudes. So anyway, I just want to throw that in there. That was interesting. It was beautiful to me. It really was. And the beautiful thing was that the Capitol cops did not mess with them. Nobody messed with them. They were escorting their representative because they felt like she wasn't safe. They, they even said, um, it's, it's a, it's a hazardous job for a woman of color in the Michigan house. And so one of those constituents was a firefighter and he's the one that organized that escort. And it says, while early reports focused on three black men with large rifles escorting Anthony, who is, uh, she's the representative. There were six participants, including two women. And some of them were armed with handguns. Uh, five of the participants are black. One is Hispanic. Michael Lynn Jr., a Lansing, resi- a Lansing resident, said he was frustrated to see his legislator being violently intimidated in her workplace. He said the escort was the first time he had ever chosen to openly carry his AR-15 rifle. Wow. That is incredible. So, and, and think about the, the narrative of that or how different it is. So when you have groups of these white dudes who are out there you know, talking about their constitutional freedoms, they're carrying guns because it's like, well, I can, it's my choice. And this group of black gentlemen are like, it's not the same. It's because it's necessary because we, and that has always been the case. Um, and kudos to them for, you know, at least probably exposing this hypocrisy at some visual level, because I'm guessing that a lot of the armed white people there probably felt some kind of, you know, fear or panic or something at the side of seeing several black guys there holding guns and, and then still you know, probably denied the racism after that. Um, <laughs> but it was, yeah, it, I, I thought that picture was really great um, because I, I guess you're going to make the, the argument that, well, we get to be here with our guns and yeah, everybody gets to, everybody gets to be there with their guns, not just you. So yeah, I actually thought that was really cool. Well, and this really says a lot about the security at the Michigan Capitol and really security for state capitals across the country. If the state capitol police failed to do their job, 
then I think it is up to the citizens to do this. And, you know, that's how the Black Panthers started. That's how AIM started. That's how these street gangs started, was to try to protect the business owners and the people in their neighborhoods. Right. Yeah, and what's weird is, like, during during that time, it was the federal government that was seen as the oppressor, and now it's kind of this weird, not grassroots uprising, uh, definitely coordinated, but this strange uprising um, that is sort of connected, and, and here's where I think it gets derailed philosophically. It's not a consistent kind of movement because they're very, they seem to be very anti-government, but at the same time, they love the dude who's at the top of the food chain, which is Donald Trump, and there's this weird disconnect because you've got people who are protesting saying we need to open states up, and then you've got Donald Trump who's still towing the line of, well, maybe we need to you know, keep social distancing going. We'll bring it in very, you know, he's not saying what they want, yet he's still their hero. I mean, he, he definitely wants to open up. I mean, he definitely wants the economy to open up. So they're kind of tiptoeing this weird line of being ideologues and then having kind of half allegiances to Trump. Um, I think it's weird. But I, I want to bring it back one, uh, before we finish, um, one thing that was really interesting to me that happened this week, and that has to do with, the the group of protesters and just the right in the United States in general, and I, I've been asked the question a few times, why is it that the, the right wing, and I think it is true, why is it the right wing, at least right now in the United States, is so much more prone to conspiracies and conspiracy theories? And I've seen family members of mine and friends from high school um, trying to share this video. It was like a fake documentary called Plandemic about, it, it was just this ridiculous, like nonsensical babbling for a half hour about how maybe the pandemic was planned and it was like global conspiracy stuff and I mean just stupid ridiculous stuff. So what's interesting is Facebook and YouTube have been taking it down um, over and over again. So as soon as it pops up on someone's timeline it gets flagged within 10 or 15 minutes and gets taken down. And so what they've been doing is trying to post it over and over and over and over again just to keep it going and you know downloading it and emailing it to each other. Um, and it's by Facebook removing it, they're using that as evidence that they are being oppressed by the larger deep state and that social media like Facebook is in on it. When really it's just that Facebook and other, like in YouTube, they have, uh, uh, I think they have clauses in their, their contracts that basically say, you know, if we find anything that could be potentially dangerous to public health, that is misinformation, we're going to remove it. So that, that, that falls under their rules, but they do feel like, you know, again, this is just another form of oppression and they are definitely more likely because of that, they're more likely to believe this insider stuff that like there's this insider track and there's a real truth out there that they're, we're not being told. Um, and that actually has caused concern for me first off, because I'm a science minded person, but secondly, um, because that really underrodes trust in democracy during this time. And that is going to essentially the, the gist of the video is we don't need to be afraid of this thing. You know, that's, that's the other part of it. Like this isn't real, but in, you know, we need to open up the States and it's going to further fuel these people who want to do these protests, but it is just nuts. Anyway, I just want to throw my two cents in there on that. It really is. Now with the last couple of minutes, I do want to get your opinion on this real quick is people of color exercising their second amendment rights 
and how we don't really do that. And we don't really embrace our constitutional rights. Do you think that is because every time we try, we get arrested or beaten? Yo, definitely. <laughs> definitely. I mean, it, it, and it's that, that if you want to see gun control go into effect immediately, watch, you know, just, just when people of color have ever started to acquire guns legally in, in large numbers, that's when we start seeing crackdowns on, on uh, gun ownership. Um, and so, yeah, I do think that's what it is. I mean, for, you know, for a black man in the United States to be walking around carrying a gun, I, I'm sure that's a terrifying idea um, just because you're going to have the entire, you know, whoever is able to see you, um, you're probably going to be afraid that you're a target for them because we know from implicit bias studies that dark skin gets associated with danger and white skin gets associated with non-danger just implicitly through our media, through uh, our education system, how we're raised, uh, how we're, you know, taught to think about people. So, yeah, I mean, that's, you know, to be able to be able to just like brazenly carry a gun around is really evidence of white privilege that you don't have to fear uh, being a target from someone else. But yeah, that, that is actually a pretty good point that the constitution is there and, you know, for everyone and there are rights that are spelled out for everyone, but not everyone feels the same ability to be able to exercise those rights because of the reality of our social conditions and what's, you know, in the way that we have been programmed to think psychologically about these categories. Very interesting. Thanks so much for tuning in. That's going to do it for us this week from the Isle of Dr. Garno. We'll catch you back here next week. And don't forget, if you miss any of our episodes, you can go wherever you get your podcasts or you can go to the Talk Jive homepage and click the podcast tab. I'm Kelly J. Lewis with Dr. Chris Garno. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great day.